The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm Monday morning welcome to Squawbox live from London and from here on the shores of Lake Como. These are your headlines. European leaders telling CNBC it's time for Europe to flex its geopolitical muscles. EU Commissioner Paolo Gentiloni says the continent should step up and fill the void as the US takes a step back following Afghanistan. We always describe Europe as a um, quiet superpower, uh, Venus and Mars. Time is now to give also Venus some geopolitical power. The French finance minister, Bruno Le Maire, also echoing the sentiment, telling me at the Ambrosetti Forum here in Chernobyl that EU countries need to beef up their defence spending. It is my deepest political conviction. Europe has to become the third political superpower between China and the U.S. for the 21st century. The Dow and S&P end the week lower after a disappointing jobs report that greatly misses the mark in August as growth in the leisure and hospitality sectors falls flat. VW CEO Herbert Dees touts autonomous vehicles as the future of the auto industry. Or Daimler CEO warns of the prolonged effects of the chip crunch. We'll bring you interviews with both of the auto chiefs as part of our coverage of Germany's largest auto show. And a big announcement from Total Energies. The company plans to invest $27 billion in Iraq. CEO Patrick Puyani signs a deal covering oil, gas and solar. As you can see, all three of us back on deck. Jeff, welcome back from holidays. But I think it's Steve who's had the best gig reclining at Lake Como for the weekend, soaking up the sunshine. Steve. Yeah, Karen, that's, that's absolutely all I was doing. No, I mean, you know how it works here as well. I mean, it is the most stunning, stunning place I ever get to work. There's no doubt about it. And, you, and everybody knows I love this place as well. But the country, rather than just doing the work, that is. Uh, but, but, but I was absolutely fascinated by what I heard over the weekend. And I, I say that not likely as well, because I expected all the usual conversations, the ones about, uh, about the progress that is being made. And of course, Europe is basking in the fact that they do have uh, a budget deal as of uh, early this year. They do have uh, the agreement on the corona bonds as well and indeed the disbursement of that to at least 18 uh, of the 27 countries as well so they have made a lot of progress Italy itself uh, has seen some really strong statistics actually and expecting to grow around about 6% having fallen around about 8.9% at the moment now there are huge storm clouds and I've been pouring through trying to just kind of scratch away at the veneer about some of the storm clouds on various issues whether it's the German election whether it's debates and battles ahead uh, about changes to global stability pact 
about, obviously, the usual um, lurking of political instability across the continent. The German elections, absolutely key. But what I wasn't uh, prepared for was what I heard uh, in the, uh, the Chatham House part of the conference here as well. And there was conversations going on that I was quite fascinated by. And Bruno Le Maire uh, and indeed Paolo Gentiloni were on a panel uh, on Saturday morning. And I thought, my goodness me, this is absolutely extraordinary what they're saying here as well. Now, I got them out of the panel and got them to pretty much echo uh, what uh, they were saying and I was hearing uh, in that panel, of course, which, of course, a lot of it was unreportable. But what they were saying is that actually, yes, there's all the usual problems. Of course, and emerging from COVID is still one of those problems, getting the economy back on track, perhaps thinking about the bits about the, the EU that haven't been done that still need to be done as well. And again, about the German election. But what they did do was they went very, very aggressively talking about the need for Europe to stop being uh, a global superpower dwarf as opposed to just a global superpower on the economic front as well. And they went very, very, very hard on this one as well. And so that's why I, I said to my team, we have got to speak to Bruno Le Maire about this. So we did. And we got in the first couple of questions into the press conference. But before that, I spoke to Paolo Gentiloni about a whole host of issues, including uh, the reality that the Global Stability Pact has a 60% level on debt to GDP and the real levels are 100% debt to GDP. But also this intriguing idea that suddenly at the top of the to-do list or very, very near it is to turn Europe into a defence superpower. Let's listen in to what Paolo Gentiloni had to say. Times have changed. Um, And I think that in the new century, um, after what happened also in the last weeks, with this uh, terrible conclusion of the right mission that we had, uh, the NATO mission in Afghanistan. I think it was a right mission, but with a very bad conclusion. But this concluder shows that um, the commitment of um, our U.S. friends and allies in some areas, uh, I mean the Mediterranean, Sahel, the Balkans, Um, will not be as strong as it was 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, And so we need to defend our interest. We are an economic superpower, but we cannot be completely absent in the um, geopolitical uh, role. This was possible maybe in the previous century. It is no more possible now. So the growth of a common European defence force must mean a threat to NATO in some way, shape or form, doesn't it? No, I think we can uh, coexist very well. Uh, of course, nobody is discussing the, the role of NATO. Uh, NATO was born and shaped mainly uh, to uh, deter uh, Russia's presence in Europe. This role remains absolutely crucial. And I am personally also a strong supporter of NATO. What I'm saying is that if the European Union role is growing, uh, if we will have a good economic recovery, um, if we are trying to be on the lead on the climate transition and many other uh, aspects of our ambition, we cannot be completely irrelevant and silent on these geopolitical dynamics. We were talking earlier about, uh, in my words, a more muscular Europe with a a larger defence policy, a common defence policy. Can one divorce that uh, from the threat of 
other nations. You talked about Russia as a threat originally for the NATO formation. Europe, the US are feeling more of a threat in many ways from China perhaps as well. Is the China antagonism an issue which actually is something that's going to be a larger part of our economic policy going forward? Are we going to be facing down China as a European bloc uh, more and more in coming years? Of course, there is a confrontation with uh, um, China and there is a cooperation. There is an economic cooperation, trade cooperation, but we are different systems. Um, it is inevitable that the model of a different capitalism, a capitalism that is not uh, connected with uh, democracy, with liberty, uh, is an alternative to the European model. And so, forcefully, we will, will be uh, partners with the US in this kind of confrontation, but also in the US interest if this European partner is also geopolitically stronger and more influent, this, I think, is quite useful. We always described Europe as a um, quiet superpower, uh, Venus and Mars. Okay, time is now to give also Venus some geopolitical power. Isn't that extraordinary? So the, the, the question I would have asked, of course, is where do you stand with the US, of course, in their battle with China? He said, well, we're going to stand with the US there as well. There is going to be antagonism with China, but we're going to try and work with them economically. But to turn Europe into a super, I thought that was absolutely extraordinary, given this huge shopping list of things that Paolo Gentiloni, the EU economics commissioner, has to do as well. So, so then I went into the press conference with um, Bruno Le Maire, and I thought I was going to ask him about some points he made. Uh, in the conversation about talking about why French, France has failed, why Europe has failed. We're just not taking the right attitude to risk. Um, we, we basically aren't working getting companies from biotech um, to pharma level as well. That's why France has failed to get a vaccine. The, the, the fact that we haven't put enough money into it. It was a real mea culpa, I have to say, and I, I thought it was a real moment of honesty. But, but that wasn't what fascinated me. It was what, and, and I, don't, I make no apologies for repeating the start of Bruno Le Maire's answer here as well, because uh, he, he said, well, what do you think his greatest political conviction is? Bearing mind he's a man of great conviction about a whole host of economic policies about federalism about europe what have you his greatest political conviction is about what europe needs to do on the defense front again listen in to bruno le maire i think this is pretty potent stuff this is my deepest political conviction europe has to become the third political superpower between China and the US for the 21st century. That's my deepest political conviction, and it has been my deepest political conviction over the last 20 years when I entered into politics. Let's open our eyes. We are facing political threats, radicalism, terrorism, and we cannot rely anymore only on the protection of the United States. This is obvious. So we need to build our own protection. That's the proposal made by Emmanuel Macron. We need to build our own protection. We have to build our own economic model. Because what we experimented during this crisis is that there is a European model. Facing this crisis, we decided to put exactly the same kind of tools and the same kind of responses on the table. 
part on unemployment scheme, state-guaranteed loans, support to the SMEs. This has been defined and adopted by all the 27 member states. So we have defined during this COVID crisis a new economic European model. We have to be done it. We should never forget it. We decided new disruptive instruments like the common issues of debt. You know that common debt was a non-starter and has been a non-starter for many European countries over the last 15 years. And now it has become a reality thanks to the crisis. Do we want to come back to the normal to get rid of this new instrument, to get rid of these new tools? Or do we want to build on this common economic response during the crisis to build a new economic model which would be a European one? Let's build this model. That's the challenge that we have to face. Again, huge amount to unpack in what Bruno Le Maire said to me um, in the press conference there, because he starts off on his greatest political conviction is that we need to become, as a bloc, and I say we, I mean the EU, uh, an economic superpower matched by being a defence superpower. He finishes, well, by saying this common European issuance of bonds, right, this needs to carry on. It needs to be the start, the foundation of something, not the end of something. And that is absolutely pivotal for the event that Jeff's going to uh, later this month, the German election as well, because there is a large part uh, of the, the, the watchers of this election who believe that if you get a CDU-type government, uh, they're not going to want a continuation of this. They see one and done uh, on those joint uh, coronavirus bonds as well. So look, if they are going to move forward with everything we just heard from Gentiloni and everything we just heard from Bruno Le Maire, surely you need more integration. It's, it's the only way it's going to work, isn't it? So then I asked Mario Monti, who, who's got the DNA of Europe imprinted uh, upon him, uh, upon his psyche as well. And, and I spoke to him, of course, the former Italian prime minister. He's a former commissioner, but he's also the president of Bocconi University, Mario Monti. So I, I, I pretty much said to him, look, look, is this a mandate for more federalism? Let's listen in. In one area of, of where Europe, uh, where the EU really doesn't exist, that is uh, uh, foreign policy and security policy, defense, uh, the Afghanistan uh, catastrophe uh, has given a boost really to the conscience among the Europeans that uh, we cannot go on uh, without uh, a global voice for Europe. After all, Europe does matter in the global conduct of affairs, but it matters uh, effectively only where domestically within the EU the member states have given to the Commission or to the ECB effective powers to represent them. This is the case of trade, of competition policy, of climate change policy to some extent, and of course of monetary policy. Uh, so I believe uh, Europe will have now to be able on the positive experience of its response to COVID and on the hugely negative experience of, Afghan, of Afghanistan to get uh, the strength for member states uh, to realize that they must give a bit more powers to the EU as a unit for the conduct of uh, foreign policy. It's very interesting, uh, and I heard it from Commissioner Gentiloni as well, about you can't be a dwarf on the, a dwarf on the geopolitical stage if you want to be a giant economically as well. But, but 
surely there are other issues that are more pressing than a common European defence policy. Uh, taxation, for one, again, we touched upon that, but don't we need more integration on the taxation front across the continent? Uh, and do you expect, as a second part of that question, to be a lot of northern resistance as there has been traditionally? Um, that will be one of the next uh, uh, building blocks of the EU. Uh, certainly the agreement at the OECD with the US on a minimum, uh, on, a, on a global minimum of corporate taxation will help. Uh, but at the same time, it is true that within Europe, some countries uh, which uh, treat uh, foreign corporations particularly well may be reluctant to accept uh, a minimum. But I think uh, uh, the, the OECD agreement in the matter of taxation gives the historical sense that the era of tax sevens is over and that uh, some more convergence there will be needed also within the EU. So I, I was a bit blown away by what I heard this weekend as well, because I think there are a multitude of problems out there lurking economically, politically, socially, voter disaffection, what have you, lots of other parties on the periphery who don't agree with what those three gentlemen had to say. But I think to see that this block is now saying defence and common defence and more muscularity on the international stage is one of our priorities. I found that quite extraordinary. Uh, Karen, Jeff, in fact, let me hand it, I'll start off with Jeff as well, because I think there was a lot to unpack in there as well uh, and a lot to discuss. Jeff, good morning to you. Yeah, very good morning, Stephen. Terrific interviews. It looks like you had uh, a run of just about everybody who was worth talking to out in uh, Chernobyl. Uh, I mean, look, deeds, not words, I guess. There's a lot going right for the Commission and for the EU at the moment. Uh, they ultimately managed to muscle through that 750 billion uh, euro uh, support fund. Uh, they managed ultimately to get the Commission to be able to raise money on its own account, a very tricky and challenging issue, as we know, with the Northern European. And of course, the growth rate looks attractive at the moment. That second quarter GDP print of 13% plus suggests that there is something of a trailing wind in terms of the economic recovery from the COVID lockdowns. But we're in basically the same place we've always been, have, aren't we? I mean, the, the, the history of the um, EU mechanisms for responding to international crisis has been left wanting. We saw that with the vaccinations. We saw that with the migrant crisis. And in reality, we also saw that in terms of a joined up response to what was going on in Afghanistan. It took an awfully long time for anybody from the commission to ultimately come out and say something about what we saw taking place in Afghanistan with the US retreat. So, Let's wait and see. I mean, it's great to hear all these commitments to step out and defend uh, EU-style democratic liberalism, but ultimately we need to see the shifts in the mechanism that clearly indicate that countries are willing to operate beyond their own limited self-interest 
in some broader bloc interest. And as we know, if you look at China's engagement uh, within Europe, within Portugal, uh, within Italy, within Germany in terms of needing uh, Germany uh, as, a, as an engineering hub to supply into Chinese manufacturing, there are very different interests that each of these countries have economically with China, say, for example, how do you unify that into a single EU position that everybody can get round? And I'll just make one final point, because I know I've gone on a little bit. Take John Kerry's recent trip to China to try and get the Chinese on board with some uh, unified approach on climate change. And John Kerry's position, look, we can put the politics and the economics to one side and just focus on the climate because that's more important. And the Chinese have said, sorry, that's not how it works. There is linkage in all of these issues. If you want progress on your climate agenda, you also have to make progress with us on our interests geopolitically and economically. And I think Europe has pretty much the same view as the Americans, that we can separate out the climate because it's a global issue that goes beyond mere politics and economics. And the Chinese have turned around and said, well, no, that's not how it works for us. And I think therein lies the nub of the issue here. It's all well and good to state your position and make a claim as to how you're going to be moving forward. But as Mike Tyson always said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. And I'm not sure until we see the deeds, not words, that we can uh, uh, truly uh, see any significant shift here. Karen, what do you think? Yeah, I just want to pick up on a couple of points. Uh, the common threat for Europe seems to be China and Russia at this point, as we've repeatedly mentioned. But this, the strategy shift seems to be triggered by Afghanistan. So quietly behind the scenes over the course of last week, while the Americans were throwing criticism and recriminations over the exit from Afghanistan, just how messy it has been, it seems the Europeans have been quietly talking behind the scenes about the ramifications for geopolitics. And effectively, what we heard late last week, it, it wasn't huge news, was that uh, there was talk about 5,000 troops of this EU army being created. And, uh, you know, how do you fund it? I mean, it's quite extraordinary that we are having this conversation, as Steve pointed out. This is not the conversation we thought we would be having. There are enormous needs already as we talk about vaccine developments, some form of cure for COVID-19 and how you continue to support economies in the next phase. Yet adding to that bill now talk of some sort of armed force and uh, a unified uh, bloc that pays for this type of endeavour. But, you know, what we saw in recent weeks, this withdrawal from Afghanistan meant that European countries also had to step back as well. They needed logistical support, aerial support from the Americans. That was not there uh, after the withdrawal date. So this has been a significant moment that we have witnessed. And I think uh, it's one we're going to be talking about a lot more from here in. And the question is, how do we fund it? Which budget now do we put this cost into if we are, in fact, talking about 5,000 troops, Jeff? Which comes back to what CNBC always does so well. How do you make the money? How do you spend the money? Where does the money come from? And it's something we're going to spend a lot more time on. And we'll be back with Steve, of course, throughout most of the program. In fact, I think it pretty much is the Steve Sedgwick show out of Italy this morning. But let's talk also about some of the other stories that we need to tell you about. We're going to hear from auto heavyweights at the Munich Motor Show as that event gets underway. Stay tuned for VW Ford and BMW. And you can listen back to some of our most hard-hitting interviews from the Ambrosetti Forum over the past few days on our Squawk podcast. You can find it online.
Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back, everybody. You're watching Scorebox. Well, it was an ugly number, wasn't it? The non-farm payrolls figure out Friday. In case uh, you were somewhere else and didn't see the figures, the payroll came in hugely short of expectations, adding only 235,000 jobs in August. That's roughly a third of the figure that was expected. The unemployment rate was in line with estimates coming in at 5.2%. The data marks the slowest rate of jobs growth since January and is expected to influence the Fed's timeline for tapering its current bond buying program. And I guess, Karen, that was the biggest takeaway for the markets there. Does that now take a September tapering announcement off the table? Exactly, Jeff, at this point. Um, we were suggesting Friday that it was a, a very wide level for the jobs report uh, consensus at that 750 level, but still estimates two to 300,000, up to 1 million jobs being added, which meant that uh, somebody was going to be wide at the mark on the back of this number. The reaction, there have been two different scenarios. One was that if you had a fairly weak number, you would get sell the dollar and buy everything on the market uh, versus the opposite. If we had a higher number where you could have seen selling on the markets, but we had that weaker number. We didn't get the buy everything approach on markets. And perhaps it tells you just how much activity there already has been on the bullish side in the markets if we just didn't get that uh, trigger to the upside or on any potential for a taper to be pushed out further down the line. So the Dow, just pulling back from some of the record levels that we've had, also same story for the S&P. But again, at those fresh peaks, are we in that frothy territory? And perhaps that was one of the messages that was sent in this Friday session. The Nasdaq still stretching out a little bit stronger, two tenths higher. Again, a fresh record in the session, yes, that we saw on the Friday trade. Treasuries, uh, we did have a little bit of movement up in that yield as well. 1.32 where we approached this morning. That is slightly more elevated. That said, we're not moving aggressively or quickly at this point on this yield. Uh, the uh, other trades we're watching closely will most of all be Tuesday when we resume. Don't forget the US is out of action for Labor Day. Uh, the trades that we saw on oil, worth taking a look at some of those as well. The demand story very much in question around the Delta variant. And with that jobs report, don't forget hospitality and leisure added no jobs during the month of August. That is a very negative sign. And you can see Brent and WTI coming off the boil in trade today. Also on the back of some news flow that the Saudis have cut prices on crude exports to Asia for the month of October, another weak signal. But worth pointing out in contrast, gold did catch a bid. Uh, some of the weakness that we've seen on the trade and expectations of a, a slow taper now, a slow to launch taper, has uh, also moved the uh, gold price uh, that uh, we've been watching very closely. We saw that in session Friday. The Asian markets, uh, this is how they're picking up on uh, some of those cues from Wall Street. It's uh, a day in the green for a lot of these markets. But again, individual uh, different factors at play here. Japan, when it comes to the political situation, current prime minister not to contest the next election. Very strong signal for markets hoping for further stimulus Friday. That continues in session today. Uh, the other markets you can see are Hong Kong uh, and uh, China will be closely following this tech ba- backlash, the regulation that's been in the mix. These markets trade high today. Australia, a little bit weaker in line with what we saw on Wall Street. 
Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.